Good to see those 9 p.m. sunsets. I'm going to devote a large portion of uh, tonight's program <clears throat> to a sort of an in-depth perspective on uh, what's going on in Syria. Uh, it's difficult to get the sort of depth required to uh, even come close to understanding the ambiguities uh, and the gray areas of a political, politically unstable situation, especially uh, one in which there's such a dearth of information. But uh, the print media is really the best place to go to for this sort of thing. But even there, sometimes uh, it's uh, very difficult. Um, Patrick Coburn, uh, brother of uh, the late Alexander Coburn, has been stationed throughout the Middle East, mostly in Iraq, for a number of years. He's written uh, extensively on the region. In fact, uh, he's the author of Muqtada al-Sadr, the Shia revival and the struggle for Iraq. <clears throat> uh, one of the few major in-depth studies on that Iraqi leader. And, of course, uh, it's difficult to find these sorts of uh, in-depth uh, re reporting. Uh, certainly on television and in most media sources. So I have a uh, article here by Patrick Coburn from the weekend's edition of Counterpunch, <clears throat> which is available both online and as an old-fashioned uh, I.F. Stone-style newsletter. And this uh, article, while lengthy, provides way more detail and context than uh, I've read uh, pretty much anywhere else in the last few weeks. And so I will... Read this report to you. How Syria became a more dangerous quagmire than Iraq. Of course, it's important to remember that just last weekend, as we observed Memorial Day, Senator John McCain once again uh, engaged in uh, going outside the capital without his space helmet, <clears throat> suggesting that we get into the war in Syria. And he went there himself on Memorial Day. Um eager to meet with those rebels and see what uh, he can do. Well, let's uh, look at what Patrick Coburn has to say, somebody who's got a, a bit more sense of what's actually happening there. And so here is his material. For the first two years of the Syrian civil war, foreign leaders regularly predicted that Bashar al-Assad's government would fall any day. In November 2011, King Abdullah of Jordan said that the chances of Assad surviving were so slim he ought to step down. In December last year, Anders Rasmussen, the NATO Secretary General, said, quote, I think the regime in Damascus is approaching collapse, close quote. Even the Russian Foreign Ministry, which generally defends Assad, has at times made similar claims. Some of these statements were designed to demoralize Assad's supporters by making his overthrow seem inevitable. But in many cases, outsiders genuinely believed that the end was just around the corner. The rebels kept claiming successes, and the claims were undiscriminatingly accepted. That Assad's government is on its last legs has always been something of a myth. <clears throat> YouTube videos of victorious rebel fighters capturing military outposts and seizing government munitions distract attention from the fact that the war is entering its third year, and the insurgents have succeeded in capturing just one of the 14 provincial capitals. By comparison, in Libya, the insurgents held Benghazi in the whole of the east, as well as Misrata and the smaller towns in the west, from the beginning of their revolt. 
The Syrian rebels were never as strong militarily as the outside world supposes. But they have always been way ahead of the government in their access to the international media. Whatever the uprising has since whatever the uprising has since become, it began in March 2011 as a mass revolt against a cruel and corrupt police state. The regime at first refused to say much in response, then sounded aggrieved and befuddled as it saw the vacuum it had created being filled with information put out by its enemies. Defecting Syrian soldiers were on television denouncing their former masters, while government units that had stayed loyal remain unreported and invisible. <clears throat> and so it has largely continued. The ubiquitous YouTube videos of minor, and in some cases illusory, victories by the rebels are put about in large part to persuade the world that, given more money and arms, they can quickly win a decisive victory and end the war. There is a striking divergence between the way the Syrian war is seen in Beirut, just a few hours' drive from Damascus even now, and what actually appears to be happening on the ground inside Syria. On recent trips, I would drive to Damascus, having listened to Syrians and non-Syrians in Beirut, who sincerely believed that the rebel victory was close, only to find the government still very much in control. Around the capital, the rebels held some suburbs and nearby towns, but in December, I was able to travel the 90 miles between Damascus and Homs, Syria's third largest city, without any guards and with ordinary heavy traffic on the road. Friends back in Beirut would shake their heads in disbelief when I spoke about this and politely suggest that I'd been hoodwinked by the regime. Some of the difficulties in reporting the war in Syria aren't new. Television has a great appetite for the drama of war, for pictures of missiles exploding over Middle Eastern cities amid the sparkle of anti-aircraft fire. Print journalism can't compete with these images, but they are rarely typical of what is actually happening. Despite the iconic images, Baghdad wasn't, in fact, heavily bombarded in either 1991 or 2003. The problem is much, wor much worse in Syria than it used to be in Iraq or Afghanistan in 2001, because the most arresting pictures out of Syria appear first on YouTube and are, for the most part, provided by political activists. They are then run on TV news with health warnings to the effect that the station can't vouch for their veracity, but viewers assume that the station wouldn't be running the film if it didn't believe it was real. Actual eyewitnesses are becoming hard to find, since even people living a few streets from the fighting in Damascus now get most of their information from the internet or TV. <clears throat> Not all YouTube evidence is suspect. Though easily fabricated, it performs certain tasks well. It can show that atrocities have taken place and even authenticate them, in the case of a pro-government militia massacring rebel villagers, for instance, or rebel commanders mutilating and executing government soldiers. Without a video of him doing so, who would have believed that a rebel commander had cut open a dead government soldier and eaten his heart? Pictures of physical destruction are less reliable because they focus on the worst damage, giving the impression which may or may not be true, that a whole district is in ruins. What YouTube can't tell you is who is winning the war. The reality is that no one is. <clears throat> Over the last year, a military stalemate has prevailed, with each side launching offensives in the areas where they are strongest. Both sides have had definite but limited successes. In recent weeks, government forces have opened up the road that leads from the west to Homs to the Mediterranean coast, and the road from Damascus south to the Jordanian border. 
They have expanded the territory they hold around the capital and trained a militia of 60,000, the National Defense Force, to guard positions once held by the Syrian army. This strategy of retrenchment and consolidation isn't new. About six months ago, the army stopped trying to keep control of outlying positions and focused instead on defending the main population centers and the routes linking them. These pre-planned withdrawals took place at the same time as real losses on the battlefield and were misinterpreted outside Syria as a sign that the regime was imploding. The strategy was indeed a sign of military weakness, but by concentrating its forces in certain areas, the government was able to launch counterattacks at vital points. Assad isn't going to win a total victory, but the opposition isn't anywhere close to overthrowing him either. This is worth stressing, because Western politicians and journalists so frequently take it for granted that the regime is entering its last days. A justification for the British and French argument that the European Union embargo on arms deliveries to the rebels should be lifted, a plan first mooted in March but strongly opposed by other EU members, is that these extra weapons will finally tip the balance decisively against Assad. <clears throat> the evidence from Syria itself is that more weapons will simply mean more dead and wounded. The protracted conflict that is now underway in Syria has more in common with the civil wars in Lebanon and Iraq than with the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, or the even swifter regime changes in Egypt and Tunisia at the start of the Arab Spring. The civil war in Lebanon lasted 15 years, from 1975 to 1990, and the sectarian divisions which caused it are as marked as ever. In Iraq, 2006 and 2007 are usually described as being the worst years of the slaughter, 3,000 people murdered every month. But sectarian killings began immediately after the U.S. invasion in 2003 and haven't stopped since. According to the U.N., some 700 Iraqis were killed in April, the highest monthly total since 2008. Syria is increasingly resembling its neighbors to the west and east. There will soon be a solid block of fragmented countries that stretches between the Mediterranean and Iran. <clears throat> In all three places, the power of the central state is draining away as communities retreat into their own well-defended and near-autonomous enclaves. Meanwhile, foreign countries are gaining influence with the help of local proxies, and in so doing, the rebel supporters are repeating the mistake Washington made ten years ago in Iraq. In the heady days after the fall of Saddam, the Americans announced that Iran and Syria were the next targets for regime change. This was largely ill-informed hubris, but the threat was real enough for the Syrians and Iranians to decide that in order to stop the Americans acting against them, they had to stop the U.S. stabilizing its occupation of Iraq and lent their support to all of Americans' opponents, regardless of whether they were Shia or Sunni. From an early stage in the Syrian uprising, the U.S., NATO, Israel, and the Sunni Arab states openly exulted at the blow that would soon be dealt to Iran and, he and to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Assad's imminent fall would deprive them of their most important ally in the Arab world. Sunni leaders saw the uprising not as a triumph of democracy, but as the beginning of a campaign directed at Shia or Shia-dominated states. As with Iraq in 2003, Hezbollah and Iran believe they have no alternative but to fight, 
and that it's better to get on with it while they still have friends in power in Damascus. Quote, if the enemy attacks us, uh, Hussein Taib, a high-ranking intelligence officer in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, recently said, uh, and seeks to take over Syria or Khuzestan, an Iranian province, the priority is to maintain Syria, because if we maintain Syria, we can take back Khuzestan. But if we lose Syria, we won't be able to hold Tehran. Close quote. Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, made it very clear in a speech of uh, on 30th of April that the Lebanese Shia also see Syria as a battleground where they can't afford a defeat. He said, quote, Syria has real friends in the region and the world who will not let Syria fall into the hands of America, Israel, or Takfiri groups, close quote. He believes the very survival of the Shia is at stake. For many in the Middle East, this sounded like a declaration of war, a significant one given Hezbollah's experience in fighting a guerrilla war against the Israelis in Lebanon. The impact of its skill in irregular warfare has already been witnessed in the fighting at Qasar and at Homs, just beyond Lebanon's northern border. <clears throat> It is probably unrealistic to expect Lebanese actors to take a step back, a study by the International Crisis Group concludes. Syria's fate, they feel, is their own, and the stakes are too high for them to keep to the sideline. The Syrian civil war is spreading. This, not well-publicized advances or withdrawals on the battlefield, is the most important new development. Political leaders in the region see the dangers more intensely than the rest of the world. Quote, neither the opposition nor the regime can finish the other off, close quote. Nouri al-Maliki, the Iraqi prime minister, said earlier this year. He continued, if the opposition is victorious, there will be a civil war in Lebanon, divisions in Jordan, and a sectarian war in Iraq. Of these countries, <clears throat> the most vulnerable is Lebanon, given the division between Sunni and Shia, a weak state, porous borders, and the proximity to heavily populated areas of Syria. A country of four million people has already taken in half a million Syrian refugees, most of them Sunnis. In Iraq, <clears throat> the Syrian civil war has reignited a sectarian conflict that never entirely ended. The destabilizing of his country that Maliki predicted in the event of an opposition victory has already begun. The overthrow of Saddam brought to power a Shia Kurdish government that displaced Sunni rule, dating back to the foundation of the Iraqi state in 1921. It is this recently established status quo that is now under threat. The revolt of the Sunni majority in Syria is making the Sunni minority in Iraq feel that the regional balance is swinging in their favor. They started to demonstrate in December modeling their protests on the Arab Spring. They wanted reform rather than revolution, but to the Shia majority, the demonstrations appeared to be part of a frighteningly powerful Sunni counteroffensive across the Middle East. The Baghdad government equivocated until April 23rd, when a military force backed by tanks crushed a sit-in protest in the main square of Hawija, a Sunni town southwest of Kirkuk killing at least 50 people, including eight children. Since then, local Sunni leaders, who had previously backed the Iraqi army against the Kurds, have been demanding that it leave their provinces. Iraq may be disintegrating. 
The feeling that the future of whole states is in doubt is growing across the Middle East. For the first time since Britain and France carved up the remains of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War. Quote, it is the end of the Sykes-Picot, close quote, I was told repeatedly in Iraq. The reference was to the agreement of 1916, which divided up the spoils between Britain and France, and was the basis for later treaties. Some are jubilant at the collapse of the old order, notably the 30 million Kurds, who were left without a state of their own after the Ottoman collapse, and are now spread across Iraq, Turkey, Iran, and Syria. They feel their moment has come. They are close to independence in Iraq and are striking a deal with the Turkish government for political rights and civil equality. <clears throat> in March, the Kurdish guerrillas of the PKK declared an end to their 30-year war with the Turkish government and started withdrawing into the mountains of northern Iraq. The 2.5 million Kurds in northern Syria, 10% of the population, have assumed control of their towns and villages and are likely to demand a high degree of autonomy from any post-war Syrian government. What will the new order in the Middle East look like? This should be Turkey's great moment in the region. It has a powerful military, a prospering economy, and a well-established government. It is allied to Saudi Arabia and Qatar in supporting the Syrian opposition and is on good terms with the U.S. But these are dangerous waters to fish in. Three years ago, Ankara was able to deal peaceably with Syria, Iraq, and Iran, but now it has poisonous relations with all three. Engagement in Syria on the side of the rebels is not popular at home, and the government is clearly surprised that the conflict has not yet ended. There are signs that the violence is spilling over Turkey's 510-mile frontier with Syria, across which insurgent groups advance and retreat at will. On the 11th of May, two bombs in a Turkish border town killed 49 people, almost all Turkish. An angry crowd of Turks marched down the main street chanting, Kill the Syrians! as they assaulted Syrian shopkeepers. Arab politicians wonder whether the Turks know what they are getting into and how they will handle it. One Arab leader says, quote, The Turks are big on rhetoric, but often disappointing when it comes to operational ability. Close quote. Oh, actually, the Iranians are just the opposite. Close quote. The recent deal between the government and Turkey's Kurds could easily unravel. A long war in Syria could open up divisions in Turkey just as it is doing elsewhere. <clears throat> when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, it changed the overall balance of power and destabilized every country in the region. The same thing is happening again, except that the impact of the Syrian war is likely to be less easily contained. Already, the frontier dividing the western deserts of Iraq from the eastern deserts of Syria is ceasing to have any physical reality. In April, Al-Qaeda in Iraq embarrassed the rebels' western supporters by revealing that it had founded, reinforced with experienced fighters, and devoted half its budget to supporting al-Nusra, militarily the most effective rebel group. When Syrian soldiers fled into Iraq in March, they were ambushed by al-Qaeda, and 48 of them were killed before they could return to Syrian territory. 
There is virtually no state in the region that hasn't got some stake in the conflict. <clears throat> Jordan, though nervous of a jihadi victory in Syria, is allowing armed shipments from Saudi Arabia to reach rebels in southern Syria by road. Qatar has reportedly spent $3 billion on supporting the rebels over the last two years and has offered $50,000 to every Syrian army defector and his family. In coordination with the CIA, it has sent 70 million, excuse me, 70 military flights to Turkey with arms and equipment for the insurgents. The Tunisian government says that 800 Tunisians are fighting on the rebel side, but security sources are quoted as saying the real figure is closer to 2,000. <clears throat> Moaz al-Khatib, the outgoing president of the Syrian National Coalition, which supposedly represents the opposition, recently resigned, declaring as he did so that the group was controlled by outside powers, i.e. Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Quote, the people inside Syria have lost the ability to decide their own fate. I have become only a means to sign some papers while hands from different parties want to decide on behalf of the Syrians, he said. He claimed that on one occasion, a rebel unit failed to go to the rescue of villagers being massacred by government forces because they hadn't received instructions from their paymasters. Fear of widespread disorder and instability is pushing the U.S., Russia, Iran, and others to talk of a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Some sort of peace conference may yet take place in Geneva over the next month with the aim, at least, of stopping things getting worse. But while there is an appetite for diplomacy, nobody knows what a solution would look like. It's hard to imagine a real agreement being reached when there are so many players with conflicting interests. Five distinct conflicts have become tangled together in Syria. A popular uprising against a dictatorship, which is also a sectarian battle between Sunnis and the Alawite sect a regional struggle between Shia and Sunni, which is also a decades-old conflict between an Iranian-led grouping and Iran's traditional enemies, notably the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Finally, at another level, there is a reborn Cold War confrontation, Russia and China versus the West. The conflict is full of unexpected and absurd contradictions, such as a purportedly democratic and secular Syrian opposition being funded by the absolute monarchies of the Gulf, who are also fundamentalist Sunnis. By savagely repressing demonstrations two years ago, Bashar al-Assad helped turn mass protests into an insurrection, which has torn Syria apart. He is probably correct in predicting that diplomacy will fail, that his opponents inside and outside Syria are too divided to agree on any peace deal. He may also be right in believing that greater foreign intervention is a clear probability. The quagmire is turning out to be even deeper and more dangerous than it was in Iraq. That is the commentary of Patrick Coburn. His material is available in book form uh, as well as online through the website counterpunch.org. And he is somebody whose background familiarity with the region is something that should be uh, taken seriously 
and dare I say it, even trusted. He speaks the language. He's lived there for over a decade, and uh, he has good reports from the region that uh, provide the sort of detail necessary uh, to make you really scratch your head when John McCain goes to Syria on Memorial Day. And in this weekend's edition of the Financial Times, uh, we're also finding that uh, the UK is to ship arms if the Syrian talks fail. Um, a planned conference in Geneva this month, uh, of course, is mentioned in the previous article. And uh, if that fails, as many expect it will, uh, the UK is uh, proposing to send those weapons on, even though, as we just heard, uh, these weapons... Uh, basically guarantee only one outcome with any certainty that uh, there will be more dead. And the idea that uh, George Bush's war in Iraq was going to build a nation and sort of recreate uh, the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein into uh, something more like a Western democracy uh, was always an illusory and dubious goal. Clearly, the opposite has turned out to be true. If you look at a map of the region, as we've commented numerous times here on Gray Matters, the ripples of disarray continue to spread outward. And in these countries that have such delicate balances, uh, the Lebanese uh, situation, the lengthy civil war there, uh, these are sparks. Um, that could ignite uh, the bigger powder keg, uh, to use an archaic metaphor. Uh, put another way, we're really witnessing the balkanization of the Middle East. Um, and of course, that can't be good. It'll be interesting to note uh, what happens with the upcoming Iranian elections, too. Uh, because strangely, uh, again, we're looking at the Financial Times for uh, reporting here, 10 days into the campaign uh, for a June 14th vote, uh, the eight candidates are struggling to create any buzz with their television campaigns and public speeches. Um, most people are saying that they're just going to stay home and not even vote. Two candidates have been uh, exempted. In other words, they're not allowed to run. And uh, the front runner uh, seems to be somebody who I think the Tea Party here in America uh, could get behind. So maybe there's some sort of future uh, coalition to be formed there between members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and America's Tea Party, because this is what they've got to say. Um uh, Mr. Jalili will revive the Islamic Revolution's ideals. We should not see women with vulgar behavior on the streets. Our foreign policy should support the poor across the world and resist against the U.S. Um, women should adhere to the core identity, which is in their motherhood. Well, that sounds like things I've heard said at a Republican National Convention before, so I think there may be some grounds for future alignment there. Uh, we are near the end of the time allotted for Gray Matters, and Yazoo City Calling will be uh, turning up in the very near future here on the frequencies of 88.3 FM, WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Um, 
So I would urge you and encourage you to stay tuned for that. And of course, a wide range of quality programming throughout the evening and week. Also want to mention, since uh, Mr. Whaley and myself are huge Stanley Kubrick fans, that a rather unusual uh, documentary will be screened uh, right here in town uh, this Thursday, June 6th, at the Ann Arbor Public Library um, at 6 p.m. There's an article about this film in the most recent uh, Harper's Magazine, uh, which is on the stands now. That's the uh, June edition. And the film is called Room 237. And to basically try to describe it in a nutshell, it addresses a number of rather bizarre conspiracy theories that have grown up around Stanley Kubrick's uh, horror masterpiece, The Shining, which, of course, is a great film by any measure. I think cinematically, it's one of his strongest and certainly one of the most powerful uh, horror films of the modern age. Uh, but besides just watching a well-crafted film about you know, the psychological breakdown of a stressed out, uh, dysfunctional family, uh, a number of people have seen hints and evidence of uh, a deeper message and meaning. And this film, Room 237, explores uh, these various theories. And I guess one of the uh, individuals whose theory is uh, explored in great depth in the film will be present uh, here in Ann Arbor for this screening, which is again June 6th, this Thursday, uh, 6 p.m. to 8.30 at the Ann Arbor Public Library. Uh, one of these theories is, of course, the notion that Kubrick is trying to secretly let the world know through various background images in The Shining that, yes, he secretly helped NASA fake the moon landings, which, of course, is complete nonsense. Um, part of the reason that theory probably uh, develops is because of the incredible detail, accuracy, authenticity, veracity of Kubrick's ultimate masterpiece, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey which he worked on from 1964 through uh, early 1968 when it was finally officially released. He was editing it up till the last, very last minute. Uh, and even after its official debut, he edited a little bit more out. Um, of course, Kubrick was working on this film and making it before uh, man had actually landed on the moon. And so they were, you know, using some guesswork involved, but... Uh, he was in constant communication with NASA and, uh, you know, what kind of equipment, what would this look like, what might that look like. And, of course, Kubrick was trying to imagine a future beyond the present. Uh, NASA was at that time gearing up for its own uh, attempt to land on the moon. And Kubrick's film sort of supposes a world that has already moved past those early deve developmental stages. Um, if anything, you might make a more reasonable argument that Kubrick helped NASA uh, make it towards the moon rather than the uh, bizarre and I think kind of pathetic uh, theory that um, he helped fake the moon landings. Um, there are other theories uh, as well that this film goes into. Uh, the article in the Harper's Magazine is by Jay Kirk. It's called The Shining Path. And it's really more about the theories and uh, this film uh, than it is Kubrick's movie, which on some level is a little disappointing to me because, as I say, I think the film has so much to offer in and of itself just through its, you know, 
stylistic composition of image and so forth. Uh, but all the same, this is a unique opportunity uh, to explore uh, a film about a film um, and to uh, talk about it afterwards, which is always the best thing to do uh, with a film is to uh, 